0: Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alan Ben Mir. Today's guest is Dov Waxman, a professor of political science and the director of the YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies at UCLA. This special episode was recorded in two parts. The second part was recorded in late September, just a week and a half before Hamas's attack on Israel. And the first part was recorded in October, two weeks after the outbreak of war and just before Israel's ground invasion of Gaza began. In this episode, Alan and Dove begin with an analysis of Hamas's attack on Israel, the divide among Palestinian leadership between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, and what steps all parties, including the international community, can take from here to ultimately usher in a sustainable peace plan. In the second part of the episode, Alan and Dov discuss Alan's proposal for an Israeli-Palestinian Jordanian Confederation addressing issues such as Israeli settlements in the West Bank, security arrangements, Jerusalem, the right of return, and the demographics of the region, particularly the interspersed populations of Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank and Israel proper, and what role the international community can play in bringing about a sustainable peace for the region.
1: Uh, Well, obviously, you're following very closely with uh, uh, the horror uh, unfolding in Israel and, and, and in Gaza. Uh, And now, of course, everyone is asking the question whether or not Israel should invade Gaza and to what end. That is, if Israel were to invade, what can, in fact, Israel be able to achieve and how it can, in fact, extract itself from Gaza should it go in? What's your take on this one?
2: Well, I'm very uh, worried about the um, uh, the potential invasion of of Gaza. I mean, I think a lot is going to depend upon the the scale and the scope of the invasion. Um, I think uh, I'm concerned, first of all, uh, because there it seems to me it's quite possible, even likely, that Hamas's attack on um, October the seventh was uh, deliberately intended to provoke an Israeli invasion of the Gaza strip to kind of draw israel in and i say that because i think uh not only because of the the scale of hamas's attack but the savagery of it and the fact that they um, you know went to efforts to record this makes me wonder whether it wasn't deliberately intended to provoke an israeli uh, offensive in gaza um and so i'm concerned that that's part of Hamas's plan, and that they have certainly prepared for uh, a Israeli. But to what end?
1: No. But to what end? Suppose this was uh, their uh, intention. Uh, what would what would they be able to realize if Israel does invade? What would be their ultimate goal? Well, I
2: think. Knowing they-
1: for well, they will sustain massive, massive losses and destruction
2: well i think they might want to uh see a kind of emulate Hezbollah's strategy in in 2006 in the second lebanon war where essentially hezbollah fought israel to a draw in southern lebanon and in doing so uh really um boosted its uh, regional standing um and so I, I i i wonder i mean you know on the face of it uh the scale of Hamas's attack and the savagery of the attack doesn't make sense from a strategic perspective from Hamas's perspective because it would seem to invite this massive retaliation from Israel and, and, and risk the very survival of the organization. And so I've been trying to understand, you know, well, why would Hamas do this then? right? Why would they um, t- carry out an attack that's so unprecedented? that it would seem to jeopardize the survival of Hamas. And that's why I think maybe the explanation is that they don't think it's gonna jeopardize their survival because they believe that they can survive um, an uh, an Israeli offensive in Gaza, that they're prepared for it, and that ultimately in a kind of uh, war of attrition in Gaza, that they may uh, be able to um, inflict uh, uh, much more harm on Israel. Uh, i'm not sh- i'm not sure that's hamas's intention but i worry about that but but yeah. just to but just to return to your your original question even if that's not hamas's plan even if hamas does not want israel to invade the gaza strip i'm still concerned about the uh, risks uh the many risks that an israeli invasion of gaza would uh, raise um first and foremost of course Um, I think it's going to lead to many, many, many more uh, Palestinian civilian casualties, uh, because um, although Israel has been trying to, you know, uh, encourage or even force Palestinians to leave the northern Gaza, uh, fighting uh, in, uh, you know, urban warfare in a a densely populated area, it's going to lead to massive Palestinian casualties. Um, As well as
1: Israeli soldiers
2: as well as Israeli soldiers, absolutely. Um, And um, on top of that, I think there's a real risk that the Israeli army might end up in a kind of quagmire in Gaza in the way that the United States did when it tried regime change in Iraq, for example, because um, much as I think it's understandable and in fact justified to try to topple Hamas's government, and I think Hamas has forfeited any right to rule Gaza, um i think that there's a it's very difficult as we've seen from uh, you know uh previous experiences to uh effectively carry out forcible regime change um and the risk is that uh it will be very hard therefore for israeli forces to leave gaza because um what will happen the day after essentially so the danger is that just as Mm -hmm. israel found itself you know uh, in a 18 year long uh, occupation of southern Lebanon after invading Lebanon in 1982, uh, uh, ostensibly to destroy the PLO, the same risk I think uh, carries now for an invasion of Gaza. That doesn't mean yeah. that Israel can do anything in Gaza. I do think they could send in ground troops, but I would, um, you know, I'm not a military... In a
1: limited incursion. A limited incursion. I, I. That's what I'm thinking, you know, that's about. But, you know, I think, I think, uh, to start to emulate Hezbollah, it's, it's my view, it's no, no, um, that's the last thing they probably want to do. Um, all they have to do is look at Hezbollah, what happened since in 2006. Hezbollah hasn't, by and large, been relatively quiet. Uh, the Israeli deterrence was quite clear, and they did not, even, even with the, even uh, Hezbollah's forces are three, four, five times as big as yeah, that of Hamas, they still did not dare to challenge Israel all since 2006 in a very significant
2: way right that's true but in, but in, in military terms but but if Hamas's agenda is in part to uh, to ensure it takes over the Palestinian National movement and ultimately becomes a dominant party in in Palestine particularly after Abbas um you know it it it, it Fighting Israel to a standstill, to a halt in Gaza, particularly, uh, they may expect international intervention at some point, could help Hamas's
1: prospects to present itself as the only effective. Um, yeah, yeah but, then, but even if they achieve that, and unless, Israel, unless they accept Israel's right to exist, I mean, they will not be able to rule anywhere. Uh, freely either in Gaza or the West Bank for that matter. So again, that's that's not I don't think I am looking at it from a completely different perspective. Why something like this? And I take it back to the what's been happening in fact in the West Bank over the last several years and especially the last 10 months. And and uh, the the suffering of the Palestinian in the West Bank, the indiscriminate, the killing, demolition, the incarceration, and on and on and on. I mean, uh, and not to speak. I mean, I was there. The, the desperation of the Palestinian in the West Bank has reached a point of no return in many ways. That, that's an element. Another element is that the the blockade. You know, there was from Hamas' perspective, there is no end to the blockade unless they basically quote-unquote surrender or give up their resistance and accept Israel right to exist uh, without something really given back to them. My feeling is that this was initiated for something for different reason, and that is to change the the um, dynamics of the conflict and to create a new paradigm. That's how I see it. That is creating a new paradigm In talking to a member of Hamas going back a couple of years, I mean, I was told very clearly that we know Israel is a a fact of life. We're not going to destroy Israel. nor that Israel would be able to destroy us. They can destroy us physically and can kill many of our leaders, but we will rise again because they cannot kill our ideology or our religion for that matter. And that's the same thing would be applied to Israel in bed. Uh, Gaza today, they can decapitate say, all of Hamas they albeit many of them already left the, left Hamas, uh, I mean, left Gaza and some many of them are in hiding and all of that. I think it's a tall, tall order for Israel to think that they can decapitate every single leader of Hamas. That's not going to happen. Uh, so what they wanted to do is create a new paradigm. What is this paradigm? That is basically to say, you know, is the the, the the, the situation is a, a dead end. They don't see any prospect for any significant change. The Israeli government under Netanyahu, going back now, years, been following policy of annexation. Uh, and this probably the last 10 years, it made it abundantly clear. No Palestinian state. And it's we, the idea is to annex most of the West Bank under any circumstances. So basically what they see, there is no prospect left for the Palestinians. They need to change. In my my study of come resolution, I'm sure you well know just just as much, maybe more. Sometimes it takes massive massive explosion of sort that is disproportionate to anything that we have seen before to change the dynamics of any gap. Or conflict, if you want to find the resolution, that's true. I mean, it was just one second, the mediation did not work, Negotiation did not work, interim agreement like the Oslo Accord did not work because Netanyahu sabotaged that from day one when he came to power in 1996. All of the international conference, everything that had been tried eventually did not yield any, any really did not yield peace, period. So what's left in conflict resolution is the possibility that something of such magnitude ought to take place. In my view, neither Israel, nor Hamas, nor the Palestinian Authority, can go back to the status quo. Ante. That has changed, in my view, in a dramatic, significant way today. The question is, invasion, like you said, I think it's a quagmire. It, it will end up killing thousands and thousands of Palestinian innocent largely. It will kill hundreds, maybe even thousands, of Israeli soldiers. And to what end? They will not be able to rule Gaza. I think it would be the worst thing that Israel can possibly imagine. Staying in Gaza for any length of time and try to take care of two plus million Gaza with all their needs above all that. So, that's again, in my view, that would be a disastrous mistake. So now, what do you do? That I see now, if if my logic prevails, if reason prevails, then there is an opportunity for a breakthrough. As the question is whether. these these minds with reason now come together and say, is it enough, is enough? But the prerequisite in my view, Netanyahu and his corrupt criminal government ought to get out of the way as a prerequisite. And of course, Palestinian authority in the West Bank, Abbas is in no position to, to reach any kind of an agreement. There'd have to be some new leadership there. And then Hamas would have a choice to join the peace process. Or to stay out of it and stay under blockage. This is a choice I would have to make. That's my signal. Uh
2: Yes, I mean, I, I don't think I, 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 do, you know, agree with you in part that it was aimed at, at changing the paradigm. Um, but I, but I think you know the one aspect that I think that doesn't really account for is the specifically savage nature of the violence that Hamas perpetrated. Because, you know, I think if it had sought, I mean, a kind of quote unquote spectacular attack, a massive attack, yes, that in and of itself would have served to change the paradigm and um, and demonstrated Israel's uh, that Israel wasn't invincible and it could have accomplished those, those uh, strategic objectives. But the fact that it appears at least that Hamas's soldiers were ordered to carry out atrocities and to film those atrocities, um, which, you know, that that I think is harder to account for as just a kind of strict, you know, in, it's just a, a paradigm, actually, because essentially what Hamas have done is, is now fundamentally delegitimize themselves as any possible, um, uh, you know, negotiate partner or part of any, uh, process in the future, which meets, and and that's the aspect of it. If if Hamas hadn't had if Hamas's soldiers had uh, carried out a massive attack aimed at uh, at uh, simply you know abducting as many Israelis as possible that they could exchange for Palestinian prisoners or killing as many Israelis as possible so that they could completely change the equation between Israel and the uh, and the Palestinians, then I could see that. But I but the the nature of the violence, I think is something that we, I haven't really seen at least any any real good explanation to account for that. The why Hamas have made a decision, it seems, to basically behave more like ISIS. Yeah,
1: well, you know, also again, obviously there is nothing to defend what they have done. It is the most atrocious, heinous uh, massacre. Uh, uh, I mean, it is hard to imagine how to describe. But when you look, when they think in their, on their side, what they see, what they also see, you know, the killing of Palestinian day in and day out. The Israeli retaliation, not just this time around, before 2014 and other, ended up with kill, slaughtering. From their perspective, the slaughter of young, of innocent Palestinians is just the same as the slaughter of Israelis. Well, but again,
2: no, it, it, it's not the same. I mean, I'm not talking about why they decide to kill Israeli civilians. No, no.
1: My my, the point is that I want to make is that, however, however atrocious this may be. I'm I'm putting myself in the in their shoe just for a moment, and how they think and they are thinking is they needed to send a horrifyingly shockwave to awaken the Israelis, the Palestinians, the international community. They needed to something something of such so dramatic, however horrifying it may be, in order to introduce a new dynamic.
2: But that, that that only accounts for the scale of the attack not the savagery of the attack
1: the savagery no it's it's
2: it's but, that, but yeah but that's the key that's what i'm getting at here no i uh, if it if they if the attacker just said we want to carry out a massive attack and a strategic terrorist attack um that would be that would that would i would you know i i can also see why they would want to do that but i don't but but the, the 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 fact that they were instructed to mutilate um, that's that's i don't i think that is a specific element of this that yeah. the existing uh explanations don't really uh, account for
1: yeah Listen, i mean I, I your point is i needless to say is well well taken the question however is today we face uh, how, no, however, the savagery they have committed, which is cannot be excused, justified, and you know, apprehend. I mean, the question is, where do we go from here? Uh, and the question is, can, in fact, as the Israeli currently defense minister and others say, we will crush Hamas concept. Of, I think that's naive.
2: That's yeah, amazing. I'm not convinced that that's, I mean, one of the things at this moment is it's quite difficult to pass rhetoric from what their actual strategy is. So, yeah, I mean, certainly they've been making the Israeli officials and the defense minister and, Netanyahu and others and IDF officials have been, you know, making very kind of bold sweeping statements about what Israel's goal is in Gaza, namely to, you know, completely destroy Hamas. I'm not sure, because we don't yet see what will be the actual strategy if and when Israel does not that that's what they will actually try to do. I mean, you know, you and I both know that in previous campaigns, there's also been this kind of, not, not as far reaching, not declared regime change. I do think Israel is, is intent on, on regime change in Gaza. And I do think that is though understandable, ultimately isn't going to work. Um, but I'm not sure if actually, but I, but I think the, 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 government probably recognizes that there's going to be a political movement of Hamas, that they want to see, they want to destroy the military organization. I don't think they're as under the illusion that they can completely uproot Hamas as a political organization, simply because, as you said, you no, know, no, Hamas the ideology.
1: I think mean, not only politically, I think physically, they cannot eliminate Thirty or thousand warriors who are hiding in a massive, massive network of tunnels, with command and control and everything they need is, is buried there. You know, I, I I just think you know the this I hate to call it the bravado of the Israelis, seems to be so overwhelming. Of course, the sense of revenge and retribution is so intense, and it seems to me the only thing that can satisfy this. Uh, you know, uh, mitigate some of the anger, but that is not the solution, obviously. But I just want to also mention to you something that I just finished writing about, and that is, you know, Hamas itself is a, a foster child of Israel. I mean, Israel, successive Israeli government going back to 1980s. And I have documents and I have quotes from people who actually mean, well, Israel created Hamas to counterbalance it. The, the most secular movement of the PLO and Netanyahu in particular and I've seen scores of a quote from him personally say time and again we have to keep Hamas continue to be allowing the money to flow from Qatar and other places in order to continue this policy of divide and conquer to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state this was the clear-cut policy of the of the Netanyahu government in particular, but that's going back even to the 1980 when the Likud, when during the Begin era and up rather, they have made a decision. This was a strategic decision. We need to create a movement to counterbalance the PLO, and and this 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 little uh, group that they wanted to cultivate now has become a monster, and they came back to to hunt those. who are, It's a creator. This is what happened. So the question today, you see, the question today, uh, I, I mean, Netanyahu government, in my view, I don't know if you agree or disagree. I don't wanna say it being almost complicit, but it has made it possible, made it possible for Hamas to grow the way it has grown, knowing full well whether the money is going there, better than 50% is being spent on armament, manufacturing and buying arms and so, and rockets and all of that. Israeli intelligence knew this only too well. But the Netanyahu policy remained the same thing. We, if we want to prevent the establishment of the Palestinian state, we have to continue to feed Hamas. That was a clear-cut approach, which is a dismal, dismal, dismal failure, in my view, which precipitated what we, the horror that unfolded in front of our eyes. This is this is the point of departure that Israelis must now face. Where do we go from here? This is the main. Point. Now, do we can 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 the conflict continue for another seventy-five years? If we don't learn, if Israelis don't learn a lesson from this horrifying tragedy, unprecedented in Israel history, if we don't, if they don't learn this lesson and do something in order to resolve, deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What is going to take?
2: Um well, yes, I I there's you 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 made a lot of points, so I and I, I can't respond to all of them. Um but I mean I certainly agree with you. I don't agree that it's been a consistent policy since the early 1980s. I think actually Israel's policy has shifted towards the Islamic movement in, in among Palestinians and toward Hamas over time, but I agree with you that Netanyahu's strategy. Uh, has been consistent since around uh, 2009, or at least in 2012. And that's been a a, a failure. Um, in terms of the future, um, yeah, obviously, right now, Israeli, the Israeli public is in no mood for negotiations with the Palestinians, and they just want to uh, overwhelmingly, at least, um, destroy Hamas. But, um, you know, if we if we think of the uh, kind of Parallel with the 1973 uh, October War, the Yom Kippur War, as Israelis call it, in the short term, that um, and that uh, there may have been this kind of hawkish response, but ultimately, that war did pave the way for the um,
1: mm-hmm. you know, to, to peace between Israel and Egypt. Yeah,
2: exactly. uh, because it demonstrated the fact that that, for all Israel's military strength, there was no military solution, and that that's time. right. Um, and so, I think it is possible in the future. Um, that that message uh, will actually resonate with Israelis and that they may be more inclined to return to the negotiating table because um, they realize, contrary to Netanyahu's statements over the last decade or so, that, you know,
1: the Palestinian issue is
2: over, they
1: can make peace it's with It's a box to be checked, as yeah. he said.
2: <laughs> and um, that, you know, their conflict is manageable and that Hamas is contained. All of those, um, you know, claims have been shattered. Um, and so, in the long run, I think Israelis may well actually be more inclined to negotiate. In the short run, however, I think there's obviously no appetite for that right now, and um, you know the Israeli public, overwhelmingly, understandably, overwhelmingly just wants to destroy Hamas. And, and but I but I think uh, it's going to be uh, ultimately impossible to do that, and um, it will come at great cost to both Israelis and Palestinians as Israel tries to do that.
1: I know, I agree with you, I just, you know, um, uh, we will conclude in a couple of minutes because I know you need to give people to leave. Um, You know, I I always think in terms of when there's a mass shooting in the United States and there's, there's an outcry for gun control laws, gun control laws, and what you hear people saying, Republicans especially. This is not the time to talk about gun control. We're sending prayers and condolences to the families who lost uh, dear ones and waiting for the next mass killing to take place, mass shooting to take place. And this is what I'm saying here, you know, you're right, immediately the Israelis may not be in the mood to talk about about peace, but this also I will have to remember that you cannot just delay this again, you know, think in terms of, well, this is not the right time. There will never be, in my view, though, a right time to deal with this in a very effective way. And actually, my recommendation, my last piece, i am just finished writing it, is that that uh, United States, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia, for sure, and Arab, ought to rethink, you know, when Biden returned from Israel, still said, the solution still lies on a two-state solution. Uh, No president in American history has shown more compassion and understanding and love and commitment in every respect than President Biden. And he still came to the same conclusion. I'm saying, it's time to stop paying lip service to the concept, start doing something about it. Well, I think that yeah. the
2: international community can do
1: lots of things. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm not yeah. suggesting doing nothing. I, I, I actually agree that. No, no, is. I
1: know, I know what ahead
2: I think there is a political opportunity for the international community and for the United States. So I, I agree that in this, in and uh, that it, it, it would be, actually, I think it would be very good for President Biden, given. His strong support for Israel and the political capital he's accumulated in Israel as a result of that to actually put forward a a peace plan at the end of this and to to outline uh, American uh, the kind of parameters for what a resolution exactly, should be. Exactly. I would even exactly. like him to the United States to uh, unilaterally recognise Palestinian statehood. I think there's lots of things the international community should do, but these are what I'm trying to to point to is that maybe. What well, there's steps the international community and Israel's allies can take and there's steps but then that's different from what the Israeli public at this moment or yeah. you know, yeah. so we should maybe focus on where the international community can really advance efforts towards peace uh, and Then, the way. And, then uh, and then turn you know when the public mood is different and is right now uh, the Israeli public and and for some time to come is not going to be um, in any mood to to talk peace let's no no at- and in the
1: short run I fully agree with you yeah. but paving the way by other uh, significant leader. players yes. like the United States like Saudi Arabia who has been talking about normalization of relations and linked the solution to the Israeli Absolutely. Palestinian conflict as a part of so these players can begin a process yes. You know, um, I, I've been in personally, directly and indirectly involved with Israeli Palestinian conflict going back, I hate to say it, more than you know, four decades. <laughs> so you can imagine the ups, the downs, the in between, yes. uh, the hopes and the disappointments. Um, but uh, I'm an optimist by, by nature, <laughs> and I never give up only because I feel that. In this particular case, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it simply is not going to go away unless there is a solution. And in my view, there will be no solution unless there is an independent Palestinian state. That is, I believe that the Palestinians, under no circumstances, they will give up their right to establish a state of their own albeit Israel will have to maintain its sovereignty its territory that is the two-state solution basically that to be um, arrived at through negotiations and through mutual agreements. that's that's the premise my dissertation in fact going back 40 years was imperative in choices and I have advocated precisely the same 40 years later uh the proposal came as a result of my Constant review and steady investigation and, and uh, of the situation. And I came to the conclusion that there are certain facts on the ground that have been created since 1967 that it's impossible to change short of um, major catastrophic event or some uh, an earth you know, shake of some sort that is going to have to change the com- completely the dynamics. And I don't see that happening. So that's the premise of the proposal where I came from. So we want I want to mention one point at a time and I'd like to discuss it with you. Before I do, I Given now that there's discussion about the possibility of Israeli-Saudi normalization of relationship, I want to put this in the context of that. Uh, I have written a uh, number of articles on the subject. I talked to Saudis directly in, in D.C. and in, in New York here. Basically, uh, urging them to not agree to any normalization of relationship unless there is a clear path for the Palestinian. Because I feel that if they don't, it is a recipe for continuing instability and, and continuing violence, and 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 it may very well torpedo even the, the peace between Israel and the UAE, sorry, and, and Israel and, and Bahrain. That is. This is a tinderbox. This is something can can explode anytime. and it doesn't have to be organized uprising. It could become a spontaneous and, and, and an arrival just about everything that everybody would like to achieve. So, so that's why my my position as far as the normal the prospect of normalization of relationship between Israel and the Prophet and the Saudi Arabia. So, I I discern you know five different points in my proposal, that have that are on the ground that I don't feel that any, that, as I said, nothing of major shake-up will not change. One is uh, the intersperse Israeli-Palestinian uh, population and, and Jordanian. That is, the settlements, in my view, most of the settlements will not be removed, short of maybe few to be relocated to other bigger settlements to create, to maintain, to allow for contiguous landmass for a Palestinian state. Um, because you see, Palestinians are in the West Bank. Israel is seven, eight of them also in the West Bank. They have two million Palestinians in Israel, and they have nearly 50% of the Palestinian and Jordan as well. So this inter- interspersed Palestinian population is the fact that I don't think it's going to be, no one can change in any dramatic way. So let me stop here and get your reaction to this point first, and I'll continue because I'd like to have an exchange rather than for everything I have in my mind. So that's my, my point. Do you, I would like to get your observation on this point to begin with.
2: On, on, the, on the question of uh, of, the of
1: the the population. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, uh, it is time to accept. um, I think the word you used in your article is the irreversibility of um, much of the settlement enterprise. Um, You know, I think there was a time when it was realistic to think about uh, evacuating most of the settlers. um, But that was that time has long since passed. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, while it may still be possible to relocate, you know, a minority of the settlers, though, obviously, the likelihood that they would agree to that is very, very small, since the settlers who would need to be relocated are those who live in the most outlying settlements deep inside the West Bank, and those are the settlers who are um, most resistant to being relocated. Um, I think um, the reality is that the vast majority of Israelis living in the West Bank and the settlements there will remain. And we have to deal with that as largely as a a fair complete now, um, rather than, you know, um, kind of holding on to some, you know, fantasy that we can kind of turn back the clock uh, to before the settlement enterprise began or when it wasn't quite as deeply entrenched. Um, I think I would go even beyond that, and not just even in terms of uh, Israel's uh, Israeli settlements but uh, you know generally it is it is difficult to really imagine uh, Israel pulling back from a lot of um, what it is established in the West Bank
1: today exactly, exactly.
2: Right? Um, I mean we've had now more than five decades of uh, what is essentially colonization of the West Bank and um that process is not going to be reversed i think uh, by any israeli government even if one were willing to do that because um i don't think they're likely to have the political capacity or will uh to do that and there is a real risk if they were willing that of of, of you know a major escalation in violence resistance by certain settlers, settlers and even the potential for a civil war, given the fact that settlers are in high ranking positions in the Israeli army, in combat units. Um, and so I think the risks to Israel uh, would be too great or uh, if it, if Israel was required to evacuate, you know, the majority of settlers and dismantle most settlements. Um,
1: so, I, I'm, you know, we are absolutely in agreement on that. So that's one aspect. The second point that I mentioned, is uh, security to even today even today israel collaborate with the palestinian authorities as a matter of fact as well as with jordan that is i envision in any future agreement between between israel and the palestinian it will have to include components strong component of security collaboration between israel and the palestinian But the the current, of of course, collaboration between Israel and Jordan is very extensive. I mean, Jordan don't talk about it. Israelis don't speak about it. But the level of collaboration on all security matters, including exchange of intelligence, selling of arms to to, to Jordan, training, as a matter of fact, many things are going on between Israel and Jordan, regardless of the superficial tension. I call it superficial because they're not allowed to go too deep into the bilateral relations between the two sides. So in my view, given the interwoven, um, so to speak, security dimension between the three sides, I believe that to establish simply a security arrangement on a bilateral arrangement with, with the Palestinians, it just won't work because Jordan is always, has been, and would have to continue to be involved in any kind long-term security arrangement with the with the palestinian and mind you of course they already have uh, some kind of arrangement between Jordan and Nepal, as, well as the palestinians so the three are already work in tandem and it's uh, um, impossible to unravel that under any circumstances be that two-state solution or any other solution so the security is another factor that cannot be modified change in any I fact it would have only to be further augmented if, you know once a confederation is created that's my second point
2: yeah well first of all i completely agree with you in that i think any lasting solution to the conflict you know security is, is essential um first of all even to reach a solution israelis in particular have to be assured that their security is not going to be undermined uh, if they think that any solution is going to be uh, is going to jeopardize either Israel's national security or their own personal security, um, then they're going to reject any solution. Yeah. I think security is essential uh, for all sides, um, and the fact of the matter is, as you've said, that Israel, contrary to popular myth, can't actually secure its own security without the cooperation of the Palestinians or the Jordanians. Um, As you said, you know, the situation today is that Israel relies upon the Palestinian Authority security forces and their cooperation in terms of maintaining order and and policing and and, and counter-terrorism in the West Bank, um, and also uh, relies upon Jordan. The problem though, is that that interdependence uh, that actually exists to this day is not something that most israelis certainly israeli jews are really aware of they are um you know very much of the mindset which is in many ways instilled in 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 zionism that you know israel has to rely upon itself for its security right. that you know that they don't they don't want to rely upon any external actor you know there's resistance to to relying upon the united states you know, for, for Israel security, let alone relying upon the Palestinians. So part of the problem is, is recognition of this interdependence. Exactly. Um, that's something, you know, certainly, you know, people in the Israeli security establishment recognize that and are well aware of it. But the Israeli public, I think, by and large, aren't sufficiently aware of that. So that's one challenge in institutionalizing the kind of ongoing security coordination and cooperation that you're talking about in, in a final settlement, you know, that I think Israelis would, Israeli Jews at least, would um, balk at that because they uh, believe, however falsely, right, that, that would be a loss of their own sovereignty, that they'd be giving up some of the, the IDF, say, freedom of action. And I, I think, you know, and, and as say, part of that, I think, is uh, is is unfounded because there's already ongoing security cooperation. But I do think what you're talking about is different from what exists today because the, existent, the situation today, and we've seen this um, over the last few months, particularly in Janine, is that it's not a security cooperation between equals. It's not of a cooperation that. between that. the Palestinian security forces That's and that. the IDF. You know, cooperating as equals, making decisions. It's basically the Palestinian or security forces uh, are allowed to operate when the Israelis allow them to operate, and what and yeah. they can operate where they're allowed to operate. So, one of the changes that um, which would be necessary then and this would be something I think would be a challenge for Israel, or certainly for Israeli Jews, is, you know, would that would that mean then veto? Would that give the Palestinian state then like the ability to veto Israeli security operations, right? They'd be, they would, um, that kind of coordination would have to be between two sovereign states or three sovereign states. And, you know, that can be challenging for it to truly be a relationship between equals as opposed to yeah. what the current situation is, where it's the IDF basically, you know, determining what they do and where they do it.
1: Exactly. And this is exactly the point that is under under conditions of peace. The security arrangements have to be further expanded to a point where there is considerable collaboration on just about every front, because in the final analysis, you still have element of Palestinian and some Israelis who are not going to accept almost any kind of solution. Uh, but there's an interesting point in terms of public perception about national security and that is successive Israeli governments specifically from right of center they made the palestinians a threat that is the way they say is that we need to maintain us because of security because the palestinian pose imminent threat all the time In my conversation with top israeli from the security apparatus including member of the mossad which i knew that i know them just just about every single one of them and with no exception, they will tell you, Israel will be far more secure if there is peace with the Palestinians rather than blaming the Palestinians to be the a party who is going to pose um, threat to Israel national security. And that is where the public has been misled. And I, I submit to you that the government specifically last 15, 20 years under Netanyahu, the successive Israeli government, they deliberately misled, misled the public. Telling them, oh, if we have a Palestinian, he said, we're going to end up having missiles coming from Jenin that can cut Israel in half, which is completely, completely misleading, false, and and but many Israelis bought or buy into this argument
2: exactly. And it's difficult. I mean, you know, I I I remember reading a study a few years ago by commanders for Israeli security, who put out a study, you know, which showed in detail how actually. Israel's security would be enhanced through the establishment of the Palestinian state. And also through, through you know, the existing situation, is it's untenable in terms of assuring security for Israeli Jewish settlers. Because they're dispersed around the West Bank, you know, every time they stop at a traffic light, they're vulnerable, they're a target. So the situation today is actually what generates a lot of the the threat, because it's basically impossible to protect a population of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israelis moving around the West Bank on all of these different roads, um, whereas being pulling back from outlying settlements and having actually you know, um, less of a uh, Israeli Jewish presence spread out, dispersed across the West Bank, would also enhance Israel's security. Not to exactly. mention, I think it would reduce at least some of the motivation for Palestinian attacks. Of course. Um, the, the problem is that um, although Israeli security officials are aware of this, um, this recognize this reality isn't is lost on most israeli jews and i agree with you that i think part of it is is kind of you know right-wing you know propaganda if you like that that (laughs) um but but it's but i think it's also you know a consequence of you know a century of conflict which is it which has deepened so much mistrust and suspicion toward palestinians and in general that it's very hard for Israeli Jews after this, you know, and um, to be able to overcome that kind of mistrust and suspicion, especially while attacks are still happening, to then actually take the mindset of, you know, actually rather than think, seeing security in zero some terms, you know, more security for us means less for them, which is the situation, to see it in positive some terms.
1: And this is, you know, you know the, the unfortunately for the Palestinian, you have these extremists, you know, like Hamas, like Islamic Jihad, who actually engage in narrative that support the Israeli argument, and that's the problem. So I tell Palestinian whenever I have opportunity to talk to them, I said, you know, you're talking about uh, you want you want a statehood. You want you want this. another going to happen as long as you continue to threaten Israel. Even though your threat will not amount to real threat to Israel, absolutely very existent. That will never, never happen. So, so unfortunately for the Palestinians, they feed into the Israeli psyche that actually the Palestinians pose an almost existential threat to Israel. So that is another issue where I feel under the umbrella of configuration, this issue of national security of all three parties yeah. can in fact be significantly enhanced. The third point that I mentioned in the, is Jerusalem. You see, to me, Jerusalem obviously is a sacrosanct. in the sense that can you change anything in the status of Jerusalem today? And my answer to that is practically none, zero. That is, Jerusalem will never be divided again. Jerusalem remained holy to Muslims to to, to the Jews and, and to a Christian, that's just the same. Jordan is remained the custodian of the Muslim holy shrine in Jerusalem, So so Jerusalem could be either a microcosm of peaceful coexistence, because if you look at Jerusalem today, Palestinians from the East Jerusalem can travel to the West Jerusalem unimpeded. Israelis can go to East Jerusalem basically unimpeded. So this interaction between the two sides, regardless of what, what any circumstances, cannot be changed. Cannot be changed. So Jerusalem, on the one hand, if there's an agreement in terms of status of Jerusalem, where the three parties, Jordan, the Palestinian, and Israel are involved, There will be a solution to Jerusalem where Jerusalem can, in fact, represent that kind of macrocosm of the coexistence between the three parties. Now, whether the question remains, which is the sticking point here, obviously, whether Israel will allow the Palestinians to to have East Jerusalem as their capital, I think this is an issue, this is a problem, but I feel that there is a possibility of going around that in terms of... The Palestinians have 350,000 Palestinians living in East Jerusalem. The question is, do they have the right to have some kind of representation in dealing with their with the with community there that is in East Jerusalem? So I'm advancing the, the idea is that there could be some Palestinian municipality in East Jerusalem, but if they want a capital, there are a number of possibilities, including expanding the parameters of Jerusalem into, for example, Silwan, and have the permanent seat of the Palestinians and so what? they can still call it Jerusalem if they choose to do. So here you have to be more creative, but the status quo as it exists today, it cannot be changed where the three parties are interlocked as far as Jerusalem is concerned because it cannot be divided under any circumstances. Your take?
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, the... Jerusalem under any future solution has to remain an open city, Um, you know, a there can't be any sort of um, expulsions or movements so you have to accept that the, the residents of Jerusalem today will remain in Jerusalem. Um, And that it can't be partitioned in a way of having hard borders. So the principle is that it has to remain an open city. Now, you know, and that and I think that can work with Palestinian residents of of Jerusalem. I think Jerusalem can and would need to be the capital of both uh, states as a shared capital with Palestinian in East, having East Jerusalem. Uh, uh, and, I mean, it could even be a single Jerusalem, but in fact, in, in fact, it serves as the capital of both cities uh, without having to divide Jew- Jerusalem. The challenge, of course, is um, not only, you know, as you said, you know, getting both sides to be willing to accept. Well, particularly Israeli Jews, because at the moment, Jerusalem is a united capital under Israeli rule, so it would be yeah. hard. Uh, to get them, I mean, when, you know, Ehud Barak famously uh, made an offer to divide Jerusalem at the Camp David summit, you know, that was something that, had had Al-Fat accepted that, I'm not sure if the Israeli public would have accepted a division of Jerusalem in 2000, and I don't know if they're any more prepared to accept that today. So getting them to accept any sort of concession on Jerusalem is going to be politically hard. The other challenge I see in terms of even if that, um, you know, quote unquote concession were, were acceptable to a majority of Israelis, is how would a united Jerusalem function uh, on a day-to-day basis because, you know, I mean, just the, the, it would just be, it would require a level of intense ongoing day-to-day cooperation.
1: Exactly. That would be exactly. very challenging. It's
2: not impossible, but it would be, and I agree with you, I mean, Jerusalem could be the, 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 the microcosm, as you put it, of what a successful solution looks like, but it could also be where it breaks down because, the two governments are just unable, or the, or a shared municipality, is 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 completely, um, you know, paralyzed by the uh, divisions between the two. It's kind of like Beirut almost, but on a
1: on much. So better. I, I as a matter of fact, I address this very particular issue, and that is, given the nature of the city today, the roads, the electricity, the cables, everything—it's—it actually is one is all united that is so if you were to if you're going to have a palestinian capital municipality in jerusalem in my proposal i'm suggesting that we create a a commission for example that in fact could deal with the inter with issues where involved both sides that is you have two two entities dealing with their where is jerusalem jerusalem But given the interrelation between the two sides, which you cannot sever, then you're going to have a sort of um, committee composed of both sides where they can do, for example, crime is committed in East Jerusalem and the criminal escaped to West Jerusalem. What do you do? Or whether the electrical grid uh, that is now together is torpedoed. How are you going to say, you have that kind of committee composed of both sides where they can actually address issue of mutual interest, for mutual concern, when there is such a problem that occurs. But also, even without the problem, the administration of both sides has to be one under a single umbrella that actually can deal with anything that involves both sides, both side, where both sides have side interest. So I address this particular issue because it would be otherwise would be basically impossible because if the political division between the two sides is barely on map not walls just a line the line then you're going to have that kind of commission that is going to have that kind of responsibility to the and mind you in the the confederation concept that i have this will also involve jordan because jordan is still the official custodian of east jerusalem and they do not want to relinquish that and 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 nor should they relinquish it for that matter as a matter of fact since 1967 they continue to pay the salaries (laughs) and the cost of maintaining the Temple Mount, you know, the haram al sharif So that hasn't changed, and Israel did not push anything to change that. So that's the third point, I feel, where this concept of Confederation is probably the only way that can actually resolve it without each side giving up too much to the other side, because maintaining the status quo, but enhancing it by the three parties. The fourth issue, which you spoke about in terms of the settlement, uh, briefly to suggest that settlements cannot, the settlers cannot be moved en masse. That's not going to happen. But in conjunction with that, the right of refugees also cannot take place. That is, I advocate in my position that they, uh, they, it is absolutely under no circumstance will Israel any government, even the extreme uh, from the extreme left. Will accept any major number of Palestinians to go back to, to Israel proper. Um, there were discussions before I was involved in back channel with this. They'll be exchanged 20 30000 under family reunification. They may be allowed to go back to Israel, but that's about the extent of it. That is a solution to the Palestinian refugees rest on resettlement and or compensation. Because, as a matter of fact, though, as you well know, the vast majority are uh, defined as refugees, but in fact they are internally displaced. Internally displaced. You find the majority in the West Bank as well in Gaza. They are living de facto on their homeland. So you cannot live on their homeland and be considered refugee. They are internally displaced. So what I am saying it here too, Israel, the United States, the EU, uh, the Saudi Arabia and other. Together, they should be able to put the whatever the resources necessary to make sure that the Palestinian refugees are resettled and are compensated. And to me, this is the only practical solution because there will be no Israeli government that will allow any Palestinian en masse to go back to Israel. And one more point, you know, uh, Shikaki to, used to take constant falls in terms of, will you go back if you have an opportunity? And I'm sure you've seen these polls, you know, what I suggest, not more than 10% of Palestinians said, yeah, we would like to go back, because when they go back, they're not going to find anything that resemble the places they left behind some uh, nearly six, six decades ago. Please.
2: Yeah, so, that, so on that point, I would say, actually, I, I think it's. In, I would distinguish between kind of the right of return in principle and the implementation mm-hmm. of that right in practice. And I, what I think um, Palestinians will not give up on um, is the acknowledgement of their right of return in principle. And I think there's a distinction, and they've recognized that distinction in more recent rounds of negotiations between the acknowledgement of that right of return, which they continue to insist upon, and is at the very heart of the Palestinian national narrative. And so I think it's, you know, very unlikely that Palestinians... Uh, would give that up, or if if Palestinian negotiators did give that up, whether it would be accepted by the Palestinians in a referendum, which probably wouldn't be necessary. So I think it's important to acknowledge for that for an agreement to recognise a right of return in principle, and distinguish between that and its implementation in practice. Recognising, as you said, that in practice, even if they had the acknowledgement of their right to return, to what is now Israel. They would not actually take up that right in practice, and so I think that way you can kind of address Israel's concern about, you know, the demographics of allowing potentially millions of Palestinian refugees to uh, return to Israel, right, Um, and the Palestinians' insistence upon their right. I think for Palestinians, recognizing the right of return goes to the heart of their narrative and It is also an acknowledgement of what happened to them in 1948. Um, And so it's important for Israel, it's not just a practical matter, in other words, of what happens to Palestinian refugees. It's not just about, it's also for the Palestinians, I think very much about the acknowledgement of how they became refugees, of what happened in 1948. So I think that's important. In practice, I agree that it's not gonna be, that it's unrealistic to um, demand or insist that, you know, millions of Palestinians return to Israel. Um, I do think, however, that it's gonna be politically problematic to say the least, to sell an agreement to the Palestinians, which is gonna allow large numbers of Jewish settlers to remain in the West Bank, right? Without Palestinians, and Palestinian refugees not being able, in any number, to live in Israel. So one of the things that I, one, the in terms of one of the ideas that I like, which has been put forward in, among other, like the Holy Land Confederation by by Yossi Balin, and that was put forward by Yossi Balin and Heba Husseini, is this idea of um, delinking citizenship and residency. Right. In other words, it would basically follow like a kind of EU. Model where people ha- could be a, live as residents of one country, have ra- residency rights, um, but not citizenship, they wouldn't be voting, for example, in elections, they wouldn't be counted as citizens, just as today, you know, French citizens can live and work in Germany while voting in French elections, or German citizens can live and work in France. Now, by delinking citizenship and residency, that allows that would allow a, a certain number. Of Palestinian refugees to have residency in Israel, and perhaps an equivalent number of Israeli Jews having residency but not citizenship in Palestine. Otherwise, it's an it's a, it's an, uh, un, it's not a symmetrical. Uh, it's asking Palestinians to accept not only large numbers of Israeli Jews as Jewish settlers, who, you know, let's face it, they're not going to want, and also giving up the right of return.
1: You know the the two points you mentioned. Uh, it's, it's worth mentioning this 2000. As a matter of fact, when the negotiation between Arafat and Ehud Barak, there was an agreement on the issue of the Palestinian refugees that a certain number would go back. But Yasser Arafat insisted on the point you just mentioned. Yes, but the right of return, as a matter of principle, should be remain in the document. And to which Ehud uh, uh, Barak refused because said, "If this is in the document, in 50 years, 30 years, 20 years, it can still come back and still claim we have the right to return." As a matter of fact, I know firsthand this is what really torpedoed the agreement at Camp David. This is one of the one of the sticking points, and this is when. I heard Barak basically Jama said after all of this time. But of course, yes, Arapat at the time was not so keen on getting to reach an agreement to begin with. It was a drag in a way to Camp David. But the second point in terms of your uh, Europe in my proposal, I absolutely suggest the point of differentiating between citizenship and permanent residency. And I agree with you and it's in the proposal, and if you read the, the, the longer piece, you will see it there. Uh, but in the negotiation in 2008 and 9 between Israel, between when Ehud Barak was, there was know. also, uh, I mean, uh, Olmert and uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas at the time, it still is actually, um, the dispute was over in terms, of the percentage of the land swap. That's what actually killed the uh, Almer what divided like six six and a half percent then swap and Arab uh Abbas offers one and a half or three quarter percent, and that also. But of course, because of Almert had this illegal problem, the whole thing was torpedoed basically in the last moment. So so but having investigated that with so many, with so many Palestinians over the years, the idea of having, as a matter of fact, actually J Street just had this conference about the Confederation, and Yosef Berlin was there. And what's her name? The Palestinian lady. Iba Hussein. Iba was also there. And it just would last 10 days ago. To, to, yeah. Maybe you've heard about it. Yeah. And they basically mentioned an you know, equal number but uh from when i see i'm talking to israelis just from the left from the center any group that is for them is non-starter it's simply non-starter uh, that's because they feel we already have two million palestinians living in israel to begin with you know so what the asymmetry you want we will never have two million israelis living in the west Bank. well think about it that's this they, way that's their position no no yeah I'm not I would say justifying today, or not justifying it, but I am no, saying... No, I,
2: under, I understand, but it's a, it's actually a false demographic concern, because what we're talking about in numbers, if you think about the fact that there's nearly, what, 300,000 Palestinians in East Jerusalem? Yeah. Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem? Yeah, that's not a
1: more,
2: yeah. though, if those Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem who are currently in Israel, right, within become our citizens of palestinian state there'll be less refugees a smaller number Oh, they will
1: stay there nobody can chase those out but they
2: but but what i'm saying is in terms of the demographics
1: well you can oh if you if you use this as an example the palestinian living in east jerusalem to stay in israel proper but the question is what is the ultimate solution to jerusalem to begin with so if for example there's an agreement on the separation well they will be permanent residents if Israel to prevail, or they're going to be citizens in their own their own country. So the so the same thing with the policy, with Israeli settlers, they will be living there, but they'll be permanent residents rather than uh, citizens of Palestine. Okay. As long as they adhere to local laws, whether you are re, uh, permanent resident or you are um, citizen, you still have to adhere to the local laws And that, And this. Seem to me, based on again conversation, that is not a sticking point. This is not going to be a problem. So, so, so he, this is the the, the, the other point. When, when you look at all of this together, so I I talk to the Israelis and say, well, uh, there was discussion about confederation between Israel and the Palestinians. What well, do you think about that? I, and just about everyone, including the members from the Lapid, from Gantz party. Almost none feel that um, Israel will have a unilateral or bilateral uh, confederation just with the Palestinians. And when I spoke to the, to the Jordanian, they said under no circumstances would be joining a confederation unless there is first a Palestinian state. So, but they are absolutely open. And I, I'm, I'm actually going to Jordan in 10 days to further expand this discussion with the Jordanian. Absolutely, they are open to the idea, but they want to make sure that the Israeli notion still exists among the right of center specifically that Jordan is Palestine. That cannot be under any circumstance. The only way they can prevent that, permanently prevent that, is by first establishing Palestinian state. Under that circumstance, then they will be prepared to join into confederation between the three parties so and interestingly here jordan will not join and as a independent palestinian state and israel will not establish confederation with the Palestinian and the jordan is part of it and that's the, the, the interesting triangle that has to be that being yeah.
2: yeah yeah i think you know i think in general the big challenge with a confederation model though it's you know to my mind the most Feasible in on um, uh, of of any future solution is the sequencing of how to get there. Um, you know, and like you said, I mean, it's complicated enough to think about that just between the Israel Israel and the Palestinians. You also, if you then add in Jordan as well, then the question of like how that's going to come about, uh, how, what what you know, whether it's going to be starting off as. Um, a kind of more traditional two-state solution with the establishment of Palestinian state. That Palestinian state then enters into a confederation with Israel. That confederation then welcomes Jordan. It's it's hard to imagine just because at the moment there's no uh, support or declining support for the establishment of Palestinian state under any circumstances. So the sequencing of these things, I think ultimately... Um, you know, in the long run, the idea of a confederation involving all three countries, or as as state independent states, is 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 a good one. In fact, one might even expand that beyond just those three countries. I mean, if you take the EU as a model, right? At,
1: at, at one point, yes, Subsequent, yes,
2: it can go beyond that. It can include Lebanon. It could even include Syria down the line. Um, but the the challenge, of course, is 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 getting from here to there and the sequencing, uh, because I think um, you know and you know another concern is let's say you have just these three countries in confederation: Israel, Jordan, um, and Palestine. What happens if Israel leaves, does like Brexit, uh, uh, and leaves the confederation, which presumably it would have a right to do because states haven't given up their sovereignty; they have the right to exit.
1: Well, if you were to establish it, it of course, has to meet a number of criteria. And the number, one of the most important criteria is that uh, there is constant benefit derived from the confederation. That is, if the Israelis feel there's always a benefit from that, that's, that's basically, for example, no more violence, peaceful coexistence, progress, growth, movement. That's gonna be an incentive, strong enough incentive, you don't want to change the status quo. So any kind any discussion of confederation is going to really establish certain elements. So in my proposal, I'm suggesting process of reconciliation. What is the process of reconciliation? Because given the current animosity, distrust, uh, hatred between the two sides, which is deeply rooted, deeply rooted, if we can they cannot sit down today or tomorrow and say, well, let's make peace. This is yours. This is mine. It's not going to work. So I'm, I'm advancing uh, a process of reconciliation, government to government, and people to people. And this, this process could take several years, five, six, seven, eight years. So the sequences, the sequential movement, is going to have to be part of, the, of that process. That is, once they get closer and closer, grow and prosper together, and be, and they begin to build the trust between the two sides, But the prerequisite here, in my my approach, is that the Israelis need to agree in in principle on the the onset of this, This in the end of the path and the end of the road, there's going to be a Palestinian state. And that has to be binding. And if it's not binding, we have another government going to come and and change it the next day. And that's where the United States, Saudi Arabia, and from the EU, perhaps Germany, Is going to why Germany? I'm sure you you know that Germany has a pretty much good relationship, very good relationship with Israel, and the only European country that has very good relations with the Palestinians. So they are trusted by the Palestinians as well. But they will represent the EU for that. So if you have the EU, the United States, and Saudi Arabia as the leading Arab country, who will be sort of the custodian to make sure that any kind of an arrangement between the three parties. They are the one who make sure that it is, in fact, process of reconciliation is taking place, and that is going to be binding under some kind of a treaty. So I'm, for example, suggesting to the Saudis nowadays, if you're going to normalize it, any kind of an agreement on the Palestinians has to be part and parcel of the normalization process under treaty conditions. So it will obligate any Israeli government to live up to, or there'll be consequences. And the consequences ought to be spelled out. They've got to spell it out. For example, we are now completely the normalization process. We will draw our ambassador, we will what. there's got to be some kind of, and we can talk about the various consequences so that Israel will feel if we violate it, these are going to be the consequences. So, and if severe enough and significant enough, obviously they're going to have to, we want to maintain what they have agreed upon in the first place. So in general of them, the concept of confederation in my view, meets much, most, most of the requirement of the three parties. That is maintaining their sub, because by definition what is confederation? It's voluntary collaboration on issues of a mutual interest. It's a voluntary collaboration. So, so given this reality on the ground that you and I pretty much agree, cannot really change in any significant way then the solution is you have to factor this in you factor this in while still meeting the national aspiration of the palestinian as well as the israelis
2: yes i mean i'm less optimistic i think than you are about the, the likelihood of of that happening just because i think even even getting uh, an israeli government to commit to the establishment of a palestinian state is going to be a very hard sell right now. I mean, the the I just saw um, survey data from the Pew Research Center, which showed that current level of support, but currently, um, just 37% of Israelis, and that includes uh, Israel's Arab citizens, just 37% believe in that, that a Palestinian state could peacefully coexist alongside Israel. Um, and that, could, that so that really underlines, like you were saying, how much uh, reconciliation, I would call it, you know, peace building, if you like, needs to take place
1: in order and to, to
2: change that. Um, but, but there's a risk, right? It's not just getting the Israeli Israeli government to accept a Palestinian state. Um, You know, even Prime Minister Netanyahu says, you know, he'll accept a Palestinian state on paper, like, but one without any real sovereignty. So it's, it's a question not just of, of statehood. For the Palestinians, but what would actually be the sovereignty of this state? And that's a big challenge, because I think uh, not only is it challenging to get Israelis to agree now to the establishment of the Palestinian state, but one that would actually be a state in real terms and not just in name only, that's another question. That's another matter. I think, you know, you, even Prime Minister Netanyahu in, in turn for a deal with Saudi Arabia might be willing to say the words Palestinian state. But we know that for Palestinian, for Nusim, what he really has in mind is, he put it, is a state minus, right? It's not actually a real Palestinian state. Yeah,
1: well, yeah you're right. I mean, the minus will be, for example, they will have no uh, military of their own. What do they need a really military for? Even if they have the most powerful military, still is not, will never be a match to Israel. And they know that. Hamas know that as well. We didn't speak about Hamas, but that's another subject matter. I include that in the proposal because if they agree with the with what we talked about, they're more than welcome to become part and parcel of the process. But if they don't agree, well, they can stay exactly where they are, and the blockade will continue until they come to their senses. But if there's going to be a movement in the West Bank, in the direction we're talking about, the Hamas is going to be under tremendous pressure to, to, to change its approach. I ain't talking to them, you know, they know very well. They're not now, not in 10 years, not in 50 years. They can actually threaten Israel in real terms, existential. They do not. They cannot pose that kind of threat because if Israel feels absolutely existential threatened by Hamas, Hamas could be wiped out. And Israel can do so at will. They choose to do so. So they, both sides understand that. But there's another interesting part. Is Hamas now begin to, you know, need Israel. They need Israel, for example, 20,000 mem- employees and labor- laborers going from Gaza to work in Israel. And one of the reasons now Hamas is restrained, challenging Israel, is because they want these 20,000 people to continue to work. So in, in my proposal, I mean, we expand that, you know, continue to expand it, where the mutuality of interest will be as such, it will overcome. But you're going to change, begin to change the public narrative. Mm-hmm. And this is, to me, is a critical legal point. So what you're suggesting, what you're saying in terms of how do you get about the difference between sovereignty and independence, this is where public narrative is going to have to change. The Palestinian know no army is going to do anything for them other than internal security, which is, in fact, can augment, as they do sometimes now, even now, which is very interesting, in some parts. So Hamas has its its place right now. It is up to Hamas to see to make the move when they want to make the move. They can join when they want to join. Of course, now they're talking about unity government and all of that. But Israel has made it a point in the past: whenever the potential of unity government, we will not deal with you unless Hamas first, like the PLO, recognizes the right to And that obviously did not happen. So, 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 to be sure, you know, wh- what you said, though, in terms of how practical it is, in terms of what Israeli government is going to actually agree Lapid, when he was prime minister, uh, said it. he said, uh, we believe in Sekhati, the Palestinian state. I'm sure you heard that statement. It was criticized by his, the government at the time. And he's not speaking on behalf of the government, all that. But yes, has said it's on record to wanting to feel that ultimate solution, ultimate Israel to reach it's, its really national security. It's only if there's going to be a Palestinian state. So the Confederation in my view, provide those elements necessary to make this a possibility. Albeit, it's not gonna be easy and we know that, But the the other options to give up, absolutely, yeah. I, I'm not prepared to give up.
2: <laughs> no, I agree with you, and I actually, I actually think you know the potential normalisation with Saudi Arabia is, as you said, is an opportunity. I mean, I would like, I think actually, the first step, uh, you know, um, to take advantage of that is not to. I don't think the current Israeli government is is going to be able. To agree to very much anything when it comes to concessions on the, toward the Palestinians, even for an agreement with Saudi Arabia. But I would, I actually was would would like the uh, Biden administration and the United States to think about recognizing a Palestinian state, because that is something actually that is within the power of the Biden administration to do. Would have many and most countries, most states around the world have already recognized a Palestinian state. And that would, I think, um, you know, be a big enough, dramatic enough, bold enough uh, step that would potentially be enough to kind of restore hope in the possibility of a two-state solution. So in other words, start with statehood and then work towards a a solution to the other issues. I think
1: this would be a remarkable step if, unfortunately, of course, I think think would be a great, if any, President Biden could do that. I mean, every administration spoke about two-state solution, two-state solution, but they have taken not a single step here material to make it actually happen. Sadly, of course, now between now and the end of the election of 2024, yeah. I don't expect Biden to, to
2: happen this yeah. kind of
1: a step. If he's reelected, probably some kind of pressure. I think this discussion about maybe you should make such a move because he's not gonna run again, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and, and uh, depending, of course, how the negotiation between US and uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia going you know, to proceed in the next year, I personally don't expect any solution, any agreement to be reached anytime soon.
2: Nor do I, nor do I. But I do yeah. agree with you that it's important to raise the Palestinian angle in any discussion of, of it, because otherwise it would actually only... Damage, further damage the right. uh, situation on the ground. So I think uh, connecting it, uh, as I think the Biden administration, to its credit, is doing is important, recognizing that this has got to bring something for them. And the Palestinians are smart. They're not doing, they're not repeating the mistake they made with the Abraham Accords. Um, they, they, uh, they've really reached out to the Saudis to make sure that, you know, their interests are not forgotten in all of this.
1: And, you know, for them, Saudi Arabia really is the last hope. That if Saudi Arabia make an agreement with Israel without giving the Palestinians what's due to the Palestinians, that means uh, the Palestinians will lose any hope. What would be the consequences of that? I think the consequences would be dire. Right. Israel, for the Palestinian and for the, probably the entire region because. There is absolutely, I mean, out of desperation because now they'll be despairing to a point where they have nothing left to lose. Absolutely. We yeah. don't want them to get to a point where they say, we've got nothing left to lose. And the Saudis, as far as I was able to do, reaching out and saying this time and again, I met with the Saudi ambassador almost every week here in New York and making this point very for years. Don't make a move unless because if you want, you have good relation with Israel, albeit, you know, does it. Uh, you can actually continue to do that. You Continue to benefit from that relationship. But if you cannot going to formalize it, don't formalize it without a solution to the policy.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So here we go. <laughs> Again, Doug, thank you so My much. Pleasure. You My pleasure. I think it, uh, this kind of podcast, I think hopefully will be useful for people to hear.
2: My pleasure I think we agreed most of the time but uh it was uh, it was a pleasure yeah, I, I
1: really there's no point with which I disagree with you I right, mean like you various angles and, uh, so I'm hoping to have more conversation with you, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you, a you, have, you have obviously uh, extensive knowledge of the subject needless to say and I think um, your input would be very important as well
2: my pleasure it was a pleasure talking with you have a safe trip
1: yeah thank you so keep much in touch. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.